Hi guys, it's Adam from Samson's Hair Care here. I wanted to let you know that when you use the code BLUEGRASS on our website, samsonshaircare.com, BLUEGRASS will save you 10% and go to support this wonderful podcast, The Walls of Time, sharing the history and stories of bluegrass. Welcome to Walls of Time Bluegrass Podcast, field interviews with the best in bluegrass. As the guitar player and a vocalist in the Seminole family band Cherry Holmes and now Sideline, Skip Cherry Holmes' story is one of bootstrap beginnings and a fast rise to the top. Although now disbanded, Cherry Holmes blazed a trail for young bluegrass artists, and their legacy remains an important one. In part one of a two-part conversation with Daniel Mullins, Skip talks about the emergence of his family's band and talks about the spiritual path that led them to make music together. Hear how this band borrowed from the East Coast bluegrass tradition, combined it with West Coast musical instincts, and created a one-of-a-kind sound in bluegrass that is still imitated today. What was the first instrument that you learned how to play? It was the mandolin, actually. Um, back in uh, 1999, when my family started messing around with bluegrass music uh everybody kind of divvied up instruments my dad was kind of letting everybody know what he thought they'd be able to play and uh, my mom was already playing mandolin so she uh kind of guided me through it um i played just an old a style mandolin uh, and played played for about a year and a half before i switched to guitar but yeah, it was my my primary instrument at first. What made you make this change to guitar? Um, so the original configuration of Cherry Holmes was um, bass, two mandolins, two fiddles, and a guitar. My sister playing guitar, uh, Sia. And after a year and a half or so of, of playing, uh, we started noticing that if we were really going to do anything with what we had we needed a banjo. So my dad appointed Sia to learn how to play the banjo. And since I was a second mandolin player, it just made sense to switch me over. So um, that's when I started playing guitar. And then we were uh, twin fiddles and mandolin guitar, banjo, etc. You mentioned um, that in 1999, your family decided to essentially learn how to play bluegrass. Yes. How did that come about? Um. So... The the short version is that, uh, of course, my family's always been musical, mm-hmm. um, but a lot of what we did was Irish music. Uh, we played um, a lot of Irish music. My dad played um, the djembe, and he played uh, the Bahrain. Does your family are, have Irish roots? Yes. Um, my uh, great-grandmother, my Grandma Opal, came from uh, Ireland and then came here and then started a family and that's where my um my momo is from and uh or well she was she was born in america but her irish roots are really strong um but the irish influence was always strong in our family um the dancing and the music uh my mom played bazooki and my uh, dad played uh, percussion played the bahrain and the the djembe and uh, my sister, my oldest sister, Shelly, um, of course, she was 
um, physically and mentally handicapped, but she could sing. She had a really deep alto voice, and uh, so she sang with the family. And then um, my brother Tyson played guitar, and my sister Sia had been playing guitar, or starting to learn how to play guitar at that point. And um, a lot of what we did when we went around was Irish music. And then when my older sister Shelly passed away in 1999, um, we, uh, we kind of tucked away the Irish thing for a little while. Uh, Irish music, if you dive deeply into it, you will find that it's based on a lot of sorrow and a lot of heartache and a lot of um, just uh, hard times because that's the culture of Ireland and the Irish people is, is a history of hard times. And so all of those emotions were a lot to handle for somebody who just lost an important member of the family who used to be a part of that culture. And so... Um, that's when we actually started just kind of seeking out a different scene, um, something we weren't familiar with. My, uh, my dad found a, uh, a bluegrass festival and we, and we, we were familiar with bluegrass, uh, but we hadn't really done anything with it. And he found a bluegrass festival about a couple hours from us, that was having a show on a Sunday. And, I mean, we went to church every Sunday, every Wednesday. My parents were part of the worship team. But it was one of those things with Shelly having just passed. It's like you come in the same circles, and it's the same questions. Well, how are you doing? You know, are you holding up okay? And and, and the sediment is, is very much accepted. But at the same time, it's like we need just... A break. It's sincere, but it's not helping. Yeah. Especially if how how old were you when your sister I was passed nine. away? Nine. Nine years old. Um, and uh, so the range of of ages at that point was nine to um, uh, twenty. And my sister um, Shelley was not quite twenty one when she passed away. So, uh, well, I guess my little sister too. She was six. Six and a half, something like that. And um, so we broke away that Sunday and went to the, the Bluegrass Festival. And um, the headliner was uh, Jim and Jesse and the Virginia Boys. And it's just an interesting twist of fate. Uh, the uh, When we got there, they didn't really have any day parking left. So they parked us backstage. We had a big old family van, and they parked us backstage. And it just kind of gave us this access to an experience we'd never known. Yeah. And uh, Jim and Jesse specifically, and uh, Jim's, or no, Jesse's grandson, Luke, who was playing with them at the time. But the whole bunch just was really, they were really welcoming to us. And, and, uh, just with everything we'd been through and, and all of that, it was just a breath of fresh air. And at that point was when my dad was like, this is something we should, we should look into. And there was no intention of there being a professional end to it. It was like we had, you know, my dad was a full-time carpenter um, for the Los Angeles school district. And so he worked all the time, but Saturdays were, you know, family days yeah. when he didn't work. 
And a lot of times on a Saturday night, we'd either, you know, watch a movie together or we'd play a game together or it was, you know, family activity. And we were like, well, let's play some music. And that's all it was meant to be at first. It was your Saturday night hang out with the family and play music just because. Almost just like a like just a fun hobby for you guys to grow closer mm-hmm. together. Yeah, and to kind of bond together after everything yeah. and, and hold each other together. Um, we never had any intention or any thought that it would do anything beyond that. And um, that just, you never know what God has in store for you. It just kind of took off from there. When did you guys realize that Okay, maybe we're getting pretty good, and maybe this uh, is something that other people would want to hear, other than just sitting around the living room. Well, so we started playing. This whole thing transpired. My my sister passed away in March, and we started messing around. That 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 one festival we went to was in. Uh, April or the beginning of May. What was the festival? What was the name of the festival? I want to say it was called the Norco Bluegrass Festival. It was in Norco, California. I could be wrong on that, but I'm 98% certain it was the Norco Bluegrass Festival. That was in, let's say, early May. Father's Day weekend, we played a festival that we'd been to before called Huck Finn Jubilee. It was yeah. in Victorville. It's actually where I'd met Steve like two years later. Yeah. Um, but we went there and back in those days, it's like if we were going to go, we went on Tuesday and my dad would set the campsite up. We were tent camping at the time. and he Which go, is awesome with a family full of youngins we did that a lot though like when we went on vacations and stuff like that we'd tent camp we'd go up into the mountains and tent camp or we'd do something that that wasn't unusual for us but uh my dad would help set up the site and then he'd go back home and go to work for you know till the weekend and then come back and uh we were at this festival this would have been june of 1999 and we're jamming just out in front of our campsite and we knew all of nine songs and did you guys have been at this all of like a month and a half yeah yeah and this this guy came up that that had taken an interest in us and he was like well look um i know this resort up in the san bernardino mountains that uh, it's like a they do apple picking and they've got like a petting zoo and you know just kind of like a little mountain town type of thing and they've been looking for some entertainment um would you be interested in doing something like that and we we're like well i mean if you think we fit the bill tell them we're around i mean we didn't consider ourselves professional or anything like that so it was like okay um but anyway he did and they contacted us and they were like, well, look, here's what we want. We want somebody who will play um, for six hours on a Saturday. and Just one Saturday? No, every Saturday. Every Saturday. Every okay. Saturday. And we were like, well, we know nine songs. So we started buckling down. Uh, the sh- the, I think the gig started um, the middle of August. 
So that gave us like a month and a half, maybe two months, to learn. And we are like, well, if we're going to do this, let's do it. So we started learning more songs, and that's when really when the dancing came around, too, because we would take a song and play it one hour without the dancing, and then play it a different hour with the dancing, and try to pass it off as a totally different song. Yeah. <laughs> you know, or a different entertainment you, piece. You, you mentioned that the, the dancing was part of the Irish music tradition. Was that something that you guys had uh, done before, was the dancing, or did that... that you just not uh, explore so, the dancing until the bluegrass? More so than the music. Um, my mom knew how to do a lot of the dancing, and she'd kind of taught us a few things here and there, and this was before the bluegrass. So when we started looking at our options for what we could pull off, that was like, hey, well, maybe let's just put a little bit more work into it and see if we can add it to what we already have musically. And especially if you're going to try to play for six hours, something to break break it up was probably exactly. a good idea. So um, we we took that first year and played every Saturday from the middle of August until Thanksgiving weekend, uh, except for one Saturday in particular in the very beginning of November. Um, somebody in the circuit had put in our name to um, enter a, a contest in Wickenburg, Arizona. It's a family band contest, which is an interesting category to be competing in because it's like, well, are there enough family bands to actually hold a family band contest? But yeah, that's a very specific niche. Yes. Um, there obviously were. There were like five contestants, and we entered, uh, and we won. And I mean, we didn't see that coming. Of course, we didn't pull out any, you know, we didn't pull any punches. We we went up there. I want to say you can find the video of the contest on YouTube. Um, it would be on the Skaggs Family Records YouTube page. We did rocky top and get up john which we had pulled off of ricky's um bluegrass rules album yeah. which was hot and heavy from 98 till you know yeah ancient tones album or you know soldiers of the cross i can't remember which one came out next but anyway still a great album yeah. a timeless album but uh we pulled that song and we worked a dance in there somewhere i can't remember exactly how but uh you know, we won the contest, and it entered us automatically into another contest that following spring. We ended up winning that contest as well. From there, it was just one of those things. It was like, okay, I guess it's starting to become apparent that people like what we do. We have no idea what we're doing. Yeah. We're in a world that we've never been in before, yeah. doing music we've never played before. But somebody's liking it. Yeah. So let's see where it goes. Did the fact that the whole scene, the whole dynamic, the music was um, new to you, that it's not something you were steeped in, did that add pressure or take pressure away? Honestly, I felt no pressure. Okay. The world I grew up in, and I can only speak for myself, probably my siblings, because, yeah, I, I feel like they would agree with me, um, was that... Uh, we had no preconceived notions 
and we had no precedence to fill. Mm-hmm. We uh, we literally could do whatever we wanted, and we angled ourselves more towards the traditional style of bluegrass because nobody in California or in that area would, were playing that. What interested you in the traditional style as a family? Was it just to, to fill that role, or what, was there something about the traditional sound that was appealing? If I could pinpoint one specific thing that was appealing about it would be the aggression. It's one thing that is is very prominent about the, the traditional style and the eastern style of bluegrass is how aggressive it is and how you know driving it is, how, I don't know, it's just, it it's it's confidence there's some real attitude about it yes and that's what we wanted that's what we liked and that whole area out there starving for that what were some of the bands or or records that that influenced you guys when you started trying to soak up this music um once you guys kind of got turned on to bluegrass well i'll go ahead and say just right off the bat it was not easy to access a lot of music um, we had a handful of record stores. Because this, this is this is pre-iTunes, pre-YouTube, pre-Spotify. 99 and 2000, Los Angeles, California. And it was hard to get uh, music, yeah. like bluegrass music. You could, you could go to Kmart and find the greatest bluegrass hits in the bargain bin for $5, but it would just have your typical... You know, it the same nine songs you guys the same probably nine already songs knew. We already knew. Yeah, that's exactly right. Um, there was a a gentleman that met us at that resort job that we played. His name was Paul Parrish, and he was from West Virginia, and he loved the traditional style bluegrass. He started doing the OG pirate. He uh, he burned a bunch of cassettes of all of this music. Um, everything from Jimmy Martin to Bill Monroe to the Louvin Brothers to the... He had every Bear Family box set you could come up with, and he put it all on cassette for us to listen to. Um, and we soaked it all up. That Between that and any album we could get our hands on, I remember one album specifically that we had gotten um was an album ibma put together as a collab back i want to say it was 2000 and it was called choice picks great record it is it's a fantastic record it was like one of the only bluegrass cds we could get our hands on out there at the time um that was really not just like another hash together of two bill monroe songs and a stanley brothers song and all that you know it is great fresh this is the sound of bluegrass in the year 2000 CD. Yes. Know. Yes. Um, so, uh, we, we just took whatever we could get. Um, obviously anything that had a real hard driving edge or a real aggressive edge was something that w- would spark our interest. Um, and then looking for songs that we knew people weren't doing, uh, which was a lot easier back then when you could find music that nobody else really had. 
or a lot of people weren't paying attention to. And we turned several songs into our version of those songs. And people thought it was fresh material because it was just an obscure song that... Well, and, and especially in your part of the country, like you said, it's stuff people weren't paying attention to. If you're listening to stuff that the other folks aren't listening to, you're automatically going to sound different, besides the fact that you're coming at everything with a new set of eyes and a fresh perspective. Mm-hmm. And so that's kind of one of the things that had set us apart in the scene as we started going into the 2000s, 2000, 2001 we were getting booked for more and more shows and we were uh we we were one of the only groups that filled that slot i mean we were a family band we had a lot of entertainment factors to what we did the dancing and yeah the, yeah any of that um we didn't capitalize on the kid thing yeah that's one thing and my my folks were very smart about I believe is that by default you're already going to have the kid thing there because the kids are up there but we weren't the lead singers you don't want to you don't want to build your reputation on the cute factor no because that goes away yeah and then if you've if that's what you've built your foundation on you foundation falls out but like mom and dad and Sia were the core singers as BJ got a little bit older he uh you know, he, he would sing a harmony part here and a harmony part there, but it was still mom and dad and Sia for the most part. It wasn't until we had kind of come into our own voices that we would start to sing a little bit here and a little bit there. It was very much a transition, um, but it was one of those, it was strategic because we didn't want to focus or feature too much cute, too much... Um, you know, little kid and novelty. Yeah. It was, it was like, Hey, we happen to be a family, but we're a band. Cause novelty has an expiration date. It does. And the only way you can, you can move forward is to just stack more novelty on top of it. And we knew at some point, or I should say my folks knew at some point we wanted to be considered a real band. So, um, I mean, they were smart about it. And they didn't f- focus on the, the the parts that they knew were temporary. Do you ever feel like the hustle and bustle of life keeps you from accomplishing your goals and staying on track? Have you ever felt exhausted at the end of the day, but yet feel like you've accomplished nothing? Help focus on your goals and stay on track with a self-journal from Best Self Co. Whether you're starting your own business, a college student, or you're just feeling overwhelmed with day-to-day life, the self-journal is packed with tools to help you get more done. With features including daily planning, a 13-week roadmap for your goals, inspirational quotes, daily and weekly habit tracking, and a place to record morning and evening gratitude. Best Self Co. offers a line of productivity tools to help you accomplish more. Check out all of their products at bestself.co. Use code BLUEGRASS to save 15% off of your first purchase. That's bestself.co, code BLUEGRASS to save 15% off your first purchase. In 2002, the early winter 2002, um, was kind of the point where it was like, okay, 
we're getting asked to and working as a band more than we ever have. Not really enough to live off of, but more than my dad had vacation days for. And and, and it was beating him up. We I remember one specific run. We had we had a show booked in Utah and it took all day to get there after he got off work. And then we'd play it, turn around and come home. He'd go grab a shower and go back to work. And it it got to that point. That's it was tough. like Yeah. We either need to go for it or stop. Because Sia was getting older. You know, she's getting to that point where she's gonna graduate high school. Is she going to go to college? You know, what are we doing? It's real life starting to kick in. And we either need to make a decision now or peg it up. And after a lot of talking and a lot of figuring out, you know, what what do we think is going to be the best move here? And we decided to go for it. So my folks sold our house in Los Angeles and we packed everything up and went on the road. That's a gamble. It is a huge gamble. Um, the a lot of people would say, "What were your mom and dad thinking?" Yeah, including us. <laughs> 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 no, uh, but seriously, a, a huge part of why it was even a consideration. Um, I'm back up just a little bit to February of 2001. And we played a festival in Bullhead City, Arizona, and one of the groups that was there was Lost and Found. And Alan Mills had taken a really strong liking to us. He had gotten a conversation with my dad, and he was like, or my dad was asking him, you know, well, what's it like to go east? You know, what do you think, how do you think we do? Alan was like, y'all need more time. You need to get a little more experience under your belt. Um, fast forward to same festival, same month of February, but one year later, Alan was like, all right, you're ready. You're ready to do something. Cause, and so he went home and started calling people. And Alan the coolest. He is. Alan's one of the coolest people, and he's willing to help anybody who's willing to put in the time. And... So that that had to mean a lot to get a stamp of approval from someone that has done it all and seen it all in this business. Yeah, well, and I I can't say that at the time we really knew what that meant because we hadn't gone east. We didn't know what kind of an icon he was. We knew he was a part of a band named Lost and Found that came to Arizona and played a festival. And it wasn't until we were actually steeped in it that we realized exactly what it was he put on the line for us. Um. James King was another one. The late James King had um, gone home that same year and kind of put in some footwork for us, called some promoters, and tried to work us into slots. And we, when we left California in July of '02, went east. We, I mean, we had stuff booked fifty dollars hundred dollars anything just to get in front of people yeah uh and it was all leads pretty much just working for gas money at that point and we were all the leads were provided by uh either alan or james 
um, or they contacted a few promoters and, and those promoters would link us up with one or two shows. Um, we worked in the Midwest a lot and then made our way East, went to North Carolina and Tennessee, all that. And I mean, it was, it was an aggressive trip and we played every weekend and, but grossed, you know, $300 a week. Just maybe enough to get us from point A to point B. We were traveling in a van and a trailer at the time, wow. and uh, and we'd set up camp somewhere at a campsite and uh, practice, do school. I mean, uh, C was graduated, but BJ, myself, and Molly were still in school. I remember I was in eighth grade that first year we went out. It was kind of one of those things. It's like, well, if if we go out here and and fall on our faces and we'll go my folks had some property in Arizona my dad was like well I'll just get a job in Arizona and and see you can go to college and we'll finish up school with the rest of you and figure it out you were so you're eighth grade what 13 at this point yeah 12 how does a 12 or 13 year old handle riding in a van with your family playing gigs camping and being homeschooled I'll tell you how I handled it. The The first three didn't bother me. The school was tough. I'm, I tell a lot of people this because uh, I think it's kind of funny. Um, that first, you know, three or four months, I guess, August, see, July, August, September, October, November, um, I'd gotten so behind in school. Uh, I'm just taken in a brand new side of the country that I'd never experienced before and and I did was not diligent and I just didn't I didn't care you know I was doing all that so uh, we got into December and my mom was like look Christmas break is here but you're so behind if you don't get caught up by January I'll fail you just because you need to learn that you need to be diligent. <laughs> and so I worked through Christmas break. I worked every day. And I got caught up. I did. I was very proud of that. But it got real right there. Because we were off like pretty much the whole month of December. And so while everybody else is hanging out doing their thing. I'm over there hustling with my books and all that. And I got caught up. And, and by the time um, graduation was was you know, graduating into high school, I was, uh, I was caught up. I actually ended up graduating high school a little bit early. Wow. But, um, the, the reality of it was, I mean, I was, I was fine with traveling. We all got along great. My, my siblings and I got along great, better than a lot of families that large do with ages like that. I mean, yeah. All over had, the place. Yeah. We had sister, brother, brother, sister in, in the age, you know, sequence. And, you know, there was a lot of potential for picking at each other and this, that, and the other thing. And we honestly, we didn't really have a whole lot of that. We got along really good. The music is kind of funny. It's like, it was, there was never a moment when I was younger that, getting on stage and playing even faced me it was like well i was gonna do this sitting in front of the car so why not do it up here in front of a microphone it, yeah. it literally made no difference to me 
I guess ignorance is bliss at that point. <laughs> um, but I, I'd say the same thing for the first time I played the Opry, which was May 3rd of 2003. It was just another gig. Yeah. I had no um, feeling of, of tension or uh, anxious about it at all. I, I was like, okay, I'm going to go up here and I'm going to play. I'm just going to do what I do. Was it just that you were that comfortable or was your confidence level that high or you were just that at ease because you played so much that it really didn't matter where you were. You had no problems playing period. Well, I think it's, it's kind of a combination of, of playing all the time and, and making no difference in whether I played here or played there. And also the kind of the ignorance factor. I, I didn't grow up, listening to the Opry or thinking about the Opry in California. So the Opry didn't hold those prestiges for me at that point. Obviously, as I got older and started realizing what all this meant, I was like, wow, was I an idiot for not taking this more serious? But then then you Just like we all have things when when we're a kid that we just don't understand that it's as big of a deal as it is exactly yeah. yeah but but at the time it was probably better because you know, i didn't have nerves i didn't you know i, I was carefree about it you know, yeah. just get up there and jam yeah you know, marty stewart's gonna introduce you okay cool <laughs> i mean I'm, I'm gonna get up here and do my part it's yeah. that's what i what i do so uh, as far as you know traveling and homeschooling and playing shows and all that kind of stuff. It it really I don't know. I never felt weird about it or uncomfortable and never really got tired of it. It's just kind of what you did. It was either do that or sit at home. Just get out here and do it. Alright, so clearly if Cherry Holmes had kept making fifty and a hundred dollars a date, we wouldn't be sitting here right now. So when did things really start to take off for you once you moved east and started trying to hustle and uh, and really make a go of it here in the bluegrass business? Mm. Well, that original tour, 2002 fall tour, um, opened up tons of doors. When we went, because we actually had moved a bunch of stuff to Arizona, when we left California. Just in case. Well, we didn't have anywhere else to put it. I guess that we makes sense. We had a whole sense. house full yeah. of stuff, and we were moving into a trailer and a, and a van. Yeah. So we had a storage unit up there where my parents had property, and and that was uh, where we were hubbing, basically. Um, when we went back to Arizona for just a few months, the phone wouldn't stop ringing. Anybody we'd played for calling us back people that they had told were calling us by the time we hit april of 2003 we had a pretty good tour schedule lined up for the back half of 03 and the front half of 04 and this is coming from or this is occurring with a group that had no intention a year before that of even being where they were at just word of mouth Exactly. Um, so, some friends of ours from California had moved to Tennessee not too long before all of this. 
And so we called him up and we were like, well, can we come hang out in Nashville with y'all while we try to sort out what it is we're going to do? I mean, I'm sorry if I'm jumping around too much, but some of this stuff just kind of bounces back and forth. But the 2002 tour, one of the stops we'd made was IBMA. And that was back when it was in Louisville. And I still have people to this day who remember that first year we were at IBMA in Louisville playing in the lobby and, and nobody had ever heard of us. Nobody knew what we were doing and we were just out there jamming. Um, one of those people was Rhonda Vincent. And Rhonda had um, used Molly, my little sister, uh, to record a song that Molly had written. And uh, from that little the fiddle tune right, right there what, yeah what, what was the fiddle tunes name i, I want to say it was called frankie bell it was just a fiddle tune molly had written off the top of her head and and uh we uh put it together and and we were playing it with our show and Rhonda heard it and she wanted to record it so she uh had a recording session in nashville and wanted us to come out there and and uh have molly be featured on the record playing that song and her brother Darren took a real liking to us. So he had asked us about producing a record for us. This all transpired um, in that fall tour of 02. So fast forward to 03 um, when we talked to our friends who had moved out there about coming and hanging out and staying with them for a little bit while we figured out what we were going to do. Darren had approached us and was like, well, let me you know, produce a record with you guys. Okay, I mean, we didn't have a whole lot of studio experience at that time, um, and uh, definitely no professional studio experience. So we set up and we went in the studio with Darren and recorded uh, a full album. And I guess all of that hand in hand just started, you know, getting our name to the right people. Uh, we started booking shows, and we were still playing for, you know, fairly cheap. Um, not $50, but, you know, fairly cheap. I, I remember uh, we were, we had talked to Norman Adams about playing at Jekyll Island, his show out there at Jekyll Island. This was supposed to be January of 04, right after New Year's. And... After much back and forth, and I, I want to say that Rhonda and Darren had a little bit to do with it too, um, he he conceded to let us play the supper break on Saturday. He's like, everybody, I don't know that anybody will be there, but I'll make a point to come watch you anyway. Well, weird way things work. Uh, that happened to be the year that I believe it was... Rhonda's appendix had gone south and so she wasn't able to make it and either she told Norman or it was just made sense for Norman we took her slots which were like primo yeah. time slots we played at like 2 and 8 that day headlining slots for a band who was supposed to play supper break and um, that's all he needed you know we played those you know, that day, and he booked us on whatever else he had that we could make, and and uh, 
things just kind of took off from there with him. And I mean, that was with everybody. And if if we could get our foot in the door and it, and it kind of got to that point, it was like, we kind of figured out that is if we could just get 15 minutes of a promoter's time, we'd land a gig, you know, and, as, as long as you know we could work out the finances and all that kind of stuff we anybody who didn't know who we were we just asked for a chance and then made the most of it and from there i mean that's it just kind of started ramping up what kind of a lesson do you think that is for folks that uh whether in bluegrass or in business or just in life in general about just asking for a chance and making the most of it um, well, I think that's a message that gets lost a lot these days. Uh, I think that, uh, there are a lot of people who don't realize that you do have to humble yourself. You have to put yourself out there in a way that may not seem immediately beneficial, but you, you only do it because you believe in what you're doing. It's about taking risks knowing that you at least believe in what you have to offer, even if you're not even really sure what that is. Because, I mean, we didn't know what that was when we started out with all of this. We we were just a California family that started playing bluegrass music on a whim almost. Um, but then again, at the same time, it's like, well, obviously somebody likes what we do let's see who else does and you throw yourself out there and you take risks and and then prove to the people who need proving that you're worth what you think you are um nothing comes for free nothing comes easy nor should it you should always feel that hunger you should always feel that 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 almost uh that sense of of impending failure but use that as a positive to drive you to do way more than you thought you'd be capable of nothing's going to come by just kind of hanging out and hoping somebody notices you you really need to get out there and put yourself out there and when somebody gives you a chance do not take it for granted get out there and give it 100 percent and it sounds like you guys were so so dedicated and so prepared that when those opportunities came, you were in a position to make the most of them because you had already been putting in the work, you know, playing in, around a tent all night. That's that's being prepared so when those opportunities come, you're ready to knock their socks off in 15 minutes, you know. Yeah. Well, and that also that comes from and is attributed to my dad and just his overall demeanor and personality um, being of the military and – you know, just everything. It was like, be prepared. That was the motto of, of anything we did. You know, it's my, my parents were, are still very much survivalists. And, um, you know, there's a whole lot of their lifestyle that points to that same feeling. And they didn't let up when it came to the music or the family. It's like, we need to be ready. Um, I didn't really touch on this, but, you know, once we did land that, that resort job back in 1999, um, the, the practicing went from 
random Saturday nights of just hanging out and playing music to, you know, two and three hours of practice individually a day, followed by, you know, two to three hours of practice as a band a day, um, an, an evening, you know, when my dad got off work. And so, I mean, we would pound out the practice and really uh, took it serious when we realized other people were taking us serious. So, yeah, preparation was was always in the forefront. And when those opportunities came, just like you said, you know, we made the most of it. We gave it everything we had, even, even up to uh, the point where... You know, we we had signed with Skaggs Family Records. How did that opportunity come about? Oh, that actually was um, when we when we uh, were at IBMA the very last year. It was in Louisville, which would have been '04. Um, was when we were approached by a gentleman named Steve Day, who was working for Skaggs Family Records at the time. Um, we had been courted by a couple of different labels, um, Rebel had courted us uh there was a, a old uh record label out of Floyd Virginia called Hay Holler Records they courted us um made a, a, a had a, a meeting I think with Kenner one with Rounder we hadn't signed with anybody though and uh we so we Got approached by Steve, and, and we met with everybody with the Skaggs family label and just felt like it was a good fit. So we signed with them, I think, in December of that same year. And uh, our record with them didn't come out until September of the following year, of 05, I think. I want to say, yeah, sounds about right. Maybe it was June of 05. I can't remember. It was, it was later 05 when the record came out. Um, but what I was going to say was, um, back in, back in that day when CD sales were still really hot, um, their distribution company was universal music, video and distribution, uh, music and video distribution. And, uh, so we had the opportunity to go to all of these different universal branch offices across the United States. And, do a performance in the office for all of these people as a way to basically introduce ourselves and try to get to buy space in Best Buys and Targets yeah. and Walmarts all over the world. They would that way they would invest more in trying to sell your product for you. Right. And you basically had about 20 minutes to give it your best shot. We did this about 7 or 8 times across the whole United in just States, different, different regions, yeah. Different regions. And so we found a way to incorporate it all. Um, acapella, grass, dancing, the whole shebang. A little bit of wit from my dad, which he was notorious for at that point. Um, we just we just put together something that we thought would be the best representation of everything we would do in a 20-minute set. And uh, it didn't, I mean, that's that was the epitome of jumping on the opportunity and giving it everything you had and being prepared for it because that takes thought you know you can't 
you can't just get up there, oh, I'm going to play this song because that's the song I think I'm good at or that's the song everybody likes. you got to be strategic about it and actually put some thought into it. So that's that's what we did every time. So you've heard us talk about Samson's Hair Care's hair pomade with its all-day hold and signature smell. Now they have something for the other hair on your face, your beard. Fellas, I don't know about you, but I love sporting a beard. It makes me feel so manly, and let's face it, the ladies love it. However, what they don't love is a beard that's unkempt and out of control, and when you're scratching all day like a dog. That's where Samson's Hair Care can help you. They have a brand new beard balm and beard oil to help you regain control of your beard. The beard oil is all about stopping irritation. It makes the beard softer and moisturizes the skin underneath so you're not scratching all day. They also have their beard balm, which helps you regain control of your beard, help it lay the way it's supposed to so you don't have them wiry hairs sticking out, and it makes your beard softer as well. They have a brand new beard balm and beard oil at samsonshaircare.com, and they know that bluegrassers need to look sharp so that's why if you use code bluegrass you'll save 10 percent off whether you want the beard oil the beard balm the uh, samson's hair care pomade or all three check it out at samsonshaircare.com use code bluegrass to save 10 percent off it's all at samsonshaircare.com code bluegrass and now back to walls of time you mentioned the word strategic um, what were some other strategic decisions that you guys made at a band? Because I feel like a lot of people in a lot of different facets of life, but especially in in business or particularly in the bluegrass business, don't think far enough ahead on having a strategy and having a plan. Yeah, um, I agree. That's with not that. a that's not a bad word. That's that's a that's a good thing. It is a good thing, especially if you plan to make this something you can do for a while and um the biggest thing that i see a lot of people make the mistake of that my my parents were not about putting the cart before the horse um a lot of bands even in california and you you think um you know if i'm if i'm going to be a band i need to go get a bus or i need to go get a bunch of sound equipment or I need to go do this, I need to go do that. Uh, no. Um, everything has its time. And my my folks were very strategic about making those moves. And even when they were the right moves to make, it was uh, a very discussed and thought out process before we actually made them. Um, because we didn't want to be stupid. So strategy uh like a getting a booking agent we had booking agents left right up and down wanting to book us because we worked so much and they they saw it as an easy opportunity i mean not to say that they would be underhanded by any means but just we kind of sold ourselves all they needed to do was put in the calls and make the commission yeah. um and that's what booking agents do, and good booking agents will keep you busy, busy for a long time. My mom did fantastic as the book, booking agent. She kept us busy. And she had a lot of bands hitting her up wanting to book them. But she, she was like, no, I, I'm full-time job booking this band. Um, 
it wasn't until as we got um, approached by um, this gentleman named Toby Tamarkin. He worked for a uh, artist management firm up in New York City and specialized in performing arts centers and um, like concert halls and stuff like that. Places you can't get into because you have a friend of a friend. Right. So at that point, it was a smart move for us. But even at that, there was a, a non-exclusive agreement because he had no idea what the bluegrass world was about. So it was like, okay, well, I've got... He the, knows performing arts centers. He doesn't know Norman Adams and Milton Harkey. Right. And yeah. a lot of people like that won't even really deal with you too much if you have a lot of red tape to go through with a, a booking agent. So it's like in the interest of making sure we don't burn too many bridges, let me handle the bluegrass. But you yeah. still got to eat, but you still need some new opportunities as well. Right. And as time went on, that actually became more prominent. The, the performing arts centers and the concert halls, um, we worked just as much. It was just, I mean, it was all indoor venues. Um, and it was a lot better pay a lot of times. Um, and I mean, we had created a good following in that area. And, and our music had changed shapes a little bit. Uh, and it was way more accepted in those areas than it was in um, the bluegrass market. A, tr a traditional bluegrass set. Right. Yeah. But what we did was more us than, than the other stuff. It kind of was the same the same approach when we started playing the bluegrass in California and trying to pick a, a breed of bluegrass that was not very popular out there, or very common, I should say. So we went for the traditional stuff. And while it was something you believed in, it was still strategic. You could, I think some some folks have the misconception that if I'm if I make a strategic decision because it's in the best interest in business, that I'm selling my soul to the devil. And you can you can do both. You should. I mean, you shouldn't sell your soul to the devil. Sorry, that's never that came out wrong. never a good idea. That was not that was yeah. not in the inclusion there. Um, you should be strategic because ultimately you are looking out for you and what you want and what's in your heart. Um, when we started kind of changing shape with the music that we played, it became more us. It was, okay, we've come to the land where the, the traditional bluegrass is what everybody plays. We're in the East now. Uh, now it's time to figure out what would be different just like what we did in California. And what was different was traditional bluegrass, and out here, that's not different. And at that point, we would got enough musical experience under our belts to start really feeling what, what we were about as musicians and singers and performers. And there was a lot of road hours and a lot of miles racked up and a lot of heartache and a lot of excitement and a lot of emotions just all over the place. So that's when we started exploring what we felt was actually us. And it started out slow and then picked up pace and took off. You guys had also, for lack of a better phrase, 
had earned the right to do that as well. You guys had already established reputation. By this time, um, you guys became the first band ever to win Emerging Artist of the Year and Entertainers of the Year at IBMA in the same year. Correct? Actually, not correct. We did not win Emerging Artists that year. We've never won Emerging Artists of the Year. You were nominated that we year. We were right? nominated. We were nominated for both. We won the Entertainer. We did not win the Emerging Artist Award. I want to say that the Grasskills had won it that year. Um, that My apologies. Oh five. No, it was notice. still a quite a feat <laughs> to, to to be nominated for both awards had never been done before. Um, that was it. Yeah, to be nominated for both. Yeah. Um, but to, uh, for back for lack of a better term, skip the one and then move on to the other, had definitely been never done before. That being said, uh, that that was at the point where our music had started to to mold a little bit more into what we were. Um, we'd been writing a lot of our own stuff. I'm pulling from energies that we'd been using for years, but also from new energies that we'd been learning and new music we'd been exposed to and, and new crowds we'd been played for playing for. And, and, uh, and then from, from that point forward, it just kind of was a rapid, um, rapid spiral forward. Uh, the, the music was way more personal and, and it, and it was more exciting to us. Uh, it was more heartfelt. And, you know, there are a lot of people that, that gave us a lot of kickback for it. And the thing that I always would say and still say to this day is, Bill Monroe started this music. But to his predecessors, he was a contemporary. He was pushing the envelope too far. He was stretching things too much um the generation that pushed off him they were stretching things too much um the the growth of music has always been that way so you know everybody who who plays what is true to their heart and is written straight out of their heart and their soul will get kickback from whoever thinks that they should be playing what somebody else already played. And that wasn't who we were. So after receiving some of the, the, the criticism and the flack that you guys caught for, as you said, you know, you heard pushing it too far. How does that make you feel when 10 years later ish, you see a generation of, bluegrass pickers whether in jam sessions or on stage like we saw today doing cherry holmes songs honestly um as far as the the masses go it makes me feel kind of like we i guess you could say we're a little ahead of our time but at the same way kind of blazing a trail at the same time it, it was to hear music that we recorded or or songs that were really really controversial for us now being recognizable well you know for example a song that's that's played that was one that we written we we wrote and performed is marked and stamped as a cherry home song so it's not 
oh, well, that's that's a traditional bluegrass number, or that's a jazz number, or that's a rock number. That's a Cherry Holmes song, you know, that's straight-up, one-of-a-kind brand. Could say it's a little aggravating to, to think that now there's a whole lot of what we did back then that is accepted now when we got so much flack for it back then. But it's that's history. I mean, you can't do anything about it. It's got to make you feel good, though, when you see teenagers or young people that are new to the music as you guys were that have grown up listening to your records and it's influenced them and made an impact on them it does it also makes you feel really old when you run into the teenagers and young people who weren't in the music before you got out of it (laughs) (laughs) and they're like well they don't remember the era of cherry homes and you're like wow i'm so old aren't i (laughs) but at the same time you know the history's there and and yeah thank god for the internet youtube and spotify and itunes and all that kind of stuff and which is funny because you know i get reports on on music and our music gets streamed and and downloaded a lot still. When that stuff was really either not around or in its infancy by the time the you guys wrapped it up. The platform was there. And that we're not a touring band. Yeah. We're not an actively sought after band. So to see the numbers and see that people are still looking for the music and looking at the music, that's, that's pretty cool. It speaks volumes. One of a fun interview with my buddy Skip Cherry Holmes on the Walls of Time Bluegrass podcast. Skip and I uh, first met when he was playing with his family band, the Cherry Holmes family. And for folks that don't recall, they were just a bolt of lightning to the bluegrass music industry when they first burst onto the scene. Yeah, it's so cool to hear uh, Skip's story of how that band came about going from uh, beginnings of playing Irish music to getting into bluegrass, playing around California. There's strong uh, church influence. Uh, first seeing Jim and Jesse, you know, at the uh, bluegrass uh, festivals and getting help along the way. Uh, he mentions that video of a contest they were in on YouTube. We'll have to dig up and check that out. Maybe post that in some of our uh, or some of our social media's uh, pages. But yeah, just a great story of the beginning of that band and. Um, uh, you know, I thought it was uh, great to hear uh, so far of how their sound developed from coming from traditional to really doing their own thing and doing their own thing actually had a big influence on especially young players and how uh, some of the more progressive younger artists are making uh, bluegrass today. So I thought it was a really great journey for him. Absolutely. I think particularly with their later albums where they branched out and had more of a uh, progressive acoustic sound, a lot of folks forget that they were a hardcore traditional bluegrass band when they first started. So it was neat to see how over the course of their career they balanced those passions for both the traditional and the more uh, uh, innovative sides of bluegrass music. That's a conversation and dichotomy that we talk about frequently on this podcast, and Cherry Holmes is a great example of that. I remember the first time I saw Cherry Holmes, 
I thought it was cool to see people my age playing bluegrass and just, uh, you know, we hate to, uh, not that we're talking bad about it, but when I was a high schooler, it was very rare to see other high schoolers at bluegrass events, let alone on stage. So I always loved it when dad would book the Cherry Holmes family to play at our festival or at different uh, bluegrass events that he helped promote because I knew there would definitely be some kids there my age we hang out Skip and I are about the same age we always had a ton of fun with he and his siblings and uh, they were a sight to behold on stage I loved it when they would bring out the boards they had the dancing they had the Celtic influence and uh, crowds just went nuts for their live shows yeah I think it's great that's part of their legacy as well as keeping uh, young people interested in the music the time that they came up uh and uh, I remember seeing them for the first time uh, one year at IBMA. I can't remember what it was, but they were already a bit of a, a, a phenomenon. And I remember thinking, what's all the fuss about? I need to see this. And when I saw them play, I know they weren't really um, – Skip talks about how they were trying not to exploit the the, the kid, uh, quote-unquote, kid angle with the band. And uh, I didn't really think they were doing that. I thought they were amazing players for to be the age that they were. But then when they did the uh, – uh, choreographed dancing with it, the whole package. I thought, yep, I can see this being why this is uh, becoming a big phenomenon. I really thought it was great when I first saw them at IBMA. They did things that nobody else, nobody else did, uh, and they just happened to be young as a family. Um, like I said, the dancing thing was one thing that it was just, it was just so cool. They did things that were so different. Um, and I, I loved Skip's advice on not capitalizing on the kid thing. Cause if you capitalize on the cute factor, eventually you're not going to be cute. And then what are you left with? But they took it serious, even though they were a family band and were younger, um, hearing about them, you know, camping across the country just so they could play bluegrass festivals was, uh, was really cool. Their, their rise while, uh, was kind of meteoric, still came with a lot of hard work and about a, a bunch of long hours and lots of driving and lots of miles. They still put in a ton of time into their craft and it really showed with the way they exploded onto the bluegrass scene in the early 2000s. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. It's definitely a, a bootstrap band. They paid their dues. Uh, they sacrificed uh, their own uh, sustainabilities to, to take a risk and go out there and, and be on the road and um, try to make a living and make a real honest go of the music. And I think that's great. And as Skip uh, mentions, you know, whenever there's an opportunity that comes up, you know, don't be afraid to take risks and capitalize on that opportunity. And I think that's a message that we have always heard from some of these um, legendary players in our, our season one a theme running through that was, you know, be brave, take, take chances and when opportunities come up, you know, don't shy away from them. And I think that's a great lesson that, uh, uh, fans, it's a great lesson that so many successful groups, uh, have in common. And I really appreciate the fact that, uh, you know, some younger bands, uh, with younger people in them don't necessarily have some of the, uh, aggression in their playing like cherry Holmes band did they really love the aggression of traditional bluegrass and uh they never were really flowery pickers although they were really great players that aggression that drive that's um purity of what great visceral bluegrass is all about has always been a part of their music i really appreciate that too you mentioned some of their some of their business acumen i love skip talking about 
um, having a strategy as part of your overall plan. You know, so so often uh, bands, not just young bands, but bands and artists in general, they have ideas and they have goals, but they don't necessarily have a plan or a strategy on how to make those things happen. And it's important not to put the cart before the horse, to think out and discuss as a unit your decision-making um, ahead of time. So that way, when those opportunities do come, you're in a better position to maximize their potential. Yeah, it's definitely important to be deliberate in your business strategy and your artistic strategy. And that's one of the elements that made Cherry Home such a success. And then on part two of our episode, we're going to get into um, when Cherry Home came to conclusion and Skip's journey in between uh, Cherry Holmes and his current band Sideline, which he also has a big family connection with there. He plays with his father-in-law, Steve Dilling. And uh, we'll talk even more about the uh, uh, some of that Skip Cherry Holmes guitar playing aggression that he applies to that fantastic band Sideline. I still remember where I was when I got the news that the Cherry Holmes family was going to be, you know, wrapping it up after a quite a career. It was funny because one of my best friends never was really too much into the bluegrass, but he did like Cherry Holmes because they were different. The youth might have had a part of it, but when we were in college, I mean, he loved it when I would get a new Cherry Holmes record. That's ones that he could get on board with. And he was with me and there's very few times I've been with him and gotten a bluegrass tweet or bluegrass notification that he would understand. But even he was bummed that Cherry Holmes was a was going to be wrapping it up and calling it a career. But so glad that uh, I'm a huge Sideline fan and learning more about that band, how it started. And like you said, the family connection going uh, to uh, his in-laws this time is uh, a ton of fun. They bring that energy to the stage as well. I think the common denominator there is Mr. Skip Cherry Holmes. So uh, fun to have him back onto the podcast next time on Walls of Time. Go to wallsoftimepodcast.com, check out our official Walls of Time t-shirts, buy one, help support the podcast, and keep bringing it to you so you can learn more about these interesting histories between some of the leaders and legends in bluegrass today. Of course, if you enjoy what you've heard on the podcast so far, if you could give us a five-star rating and review, it would appreciate it. It really does a lot to help uh, promote the podcast to more people who may enjoy it. So if you could give us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, whatever, we'd really appreciate it. And we're on social media at Walls of Time Podcast on Facebook and Instagram, Walls of Time Pod on Twitter. And we'll be adding some Cherry Holmes music to our Spotify Walls of Time playlist, too, that accompanies each episode of the show. And that playlist includes uh, past episodes as well. So check that out. Until next time, thanks for listening. Walls of Time Bluegrass Podcast is produced by Ty Gilpin and Daniel Mullins, edited by Daniel Mullins, and is a production of Blue Poncho Media. Visit wallsoftimepodcast.com for more information.